Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, except not Amy today, and for Amy today is Charles Thomas, former ABC7 political reporter. Charles, welcome. And good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning. Uh, great to be here, man. I've always thought of this show as an island of sanity amid the chaos. <laughs> island of sanity amid the chaos. We're going to have to put that on our brochures. I like good, that. Man. Thank yeah. you. Very sounds good. Like a, sounds like a promotional. Story. Very good. Um, so uh, you have connections to both Kansas City and Philadelphia. So who were you rooting for last night? I was night? rooting for Kansas City. Both my, both my uh, offspring now adults, were born in uh, Kansas City. My first job at KCMO Radio, Uh Odd Country Radio. I was the um, morning agriculture reporter. Sure. Uh, When I got out of college, my first job worked midnight (laughs) to 8 a.m. in the morning. Because you went to Mizzou. I went to Mizzou. And um, And you're a farmer? You're a farmer? No, I wasn't. Well, uh, well, it depends on what you call a farmer. What, you're, what am I growing? <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, you know, late 60s, you know. Before uh, there was Orion Samuelson, there was Charles Thomas yeah, doing the know, crop be, reports. Be, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, right, but, you know, we had a guy named Paul Pippert, and he would come to the newsroom, and he would get the guys together to buy a boxcar of March wheat or soybeans or something like that or whatever he thought was hot uh, that would go up in price, and he would – you know, we'd all give him a hundred bucks or something like that, and maybe get back two hundred. Okay. Maybe get back fifty. <laughs> right. Well, right. Yes. It's a really uh, dicey thing, but anyway, I mean, it it was a great experience. Did now, did did you have any knowledge or background in agriculture? None. Yeah. Zero. Exactly. Perfect. Absolutely yeah. none. Yeah, that's what people are sometimes confused. They think if you're on the radio or TV, you have expert knowledge on something, and you you don't have to. And you know, I would read these terms like. Barrows and gilts; those are hogs. I found out Is much right? later. Okay, much later after I left the job, you know, I found out what was I talking about? You know, heifers, <laughs> and I didn't even know a steer. What what a steer was? I always know? wondered what I, I mean, was talking about at that job that I had. Yeah. yeah. Um. So <laughs> sorry. So you were Kansas City and Philadelphia. I worked in Philly for six years in the nineteen early nineteen eighties at CBS, and then at what is now the Fox station in in Philly. And, um, you know, I I enjoyed Philly a lot. Philly was a lot like Chicago, but a lot dirtier. I mean, <laughs> Philly, yeah. we used to call it Philadelphia, but a great place. I mean, people ate a lot of dough. I mean, they love those pretzels, cheesesteaks, and pizza. People eat, That's, yeah, they, they like dough. They, I called it the dough belt. They like dough, and they like turning over cars and climbing Did on streetlights. They, and they they turned over a car apparently before pregame. 
pregame. Part of the pregame, <laughs> pregame warm-up. No, I love Philly. I mean, they, they, um, they, the salutation in Philly is the, um, the f bomb. Yeah, I, uh, I'm. I was wondering how long it would take for them to turn on the Eagles and call for Nick Sirianni to be fired after last night's uh, narrow loss. Give him a couple of days. Yeah, I mean, right. You know, yeah. Uh, and and Hurts. I thought Hurts played a tremendous game, except for the fumble. That was the key. That fumble, and then that punt return. Well, Those are the two things that. that yeah, the punt, the punt return definitely, but also also I mean again I, I was rooting for Kansas City as you were. Um. Don't like Philadelphia fans. Um, Jalen Hurts, great player. He, he had a great game. Um, it, it, I mean, Philadelphia played pretty well. The adjustments, though, Andy Reid, you know, comes back to haunt Philadelphia. Adjustments he made at halftime after Philadelphia really uh, was in control of that game in the first half. But but I, I hate to I hate to do this. I hate, I hate to do it in the AFC Championship game too. But just like you cannot make that personal foul call in the AFC Championship game against. Uh, the Bengals, you cannot make that defensive holding call that they made at the end of the game. Those refs know who the great players are. They knew that Mahomes could make that throw and that they wouldn't have made that call against Justin Fields because he hasn't proven he can consistently make that throw. But they know that Mahomes can make that throw, so they threw the flag on that guy because that was a hold, but it was a ticky tack. Well, it's a ticky, oh. it's a ticky tack hold, but the, but the whole point is, if it's a ticky tack foul, you can't call a ticky tack foul when the game's on the line. You well, just you can't you can't do it. I, 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 it, it, it dampened it for me, even though no, but talking about Mahomes uh, after re-injuring his ankle near the end of the first half. I mean, that was a command performance. Look, one I, for the ages. I, I got one thing to say about that. Whatever happened in the locker room at halftime i want what he had yeah right <laughs> exactly i'll have what he's having yeah you know it's funny about mahomes uh, this was posted yesterday as a little bit of a reminder and a turning the knife in the back of chicago bears fans this is pat mahomes's this is over at the players tribune pat mahomes's letter in april of 2017 before the draft to nfl coaches and general managers I mean, I'll read a part of this, but boy, Mitch Trubisky must have written a hell of a personal a statement. Hell of a letter. <laughs> I mean, that was a heck of a letter. Uh, he 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 writes. You've watched me run and jump and lift weights and throw a ball as far as I can. You've wondered a lot if I can adjust to the speed of the program and adapt to the con- complexity of an NFL offense. All those things are important, and for the most part, they all involve football in some way. But they're still not quite football. That's not the same thing as being out there in a game in the huddle with my team. Football is under the lights, facing the elements in front of 60,000 people. It's keeping your guys motivated, whatever the circumstances, and having the determination to bring your team back seemingly from seemingly certain defeat in the fourth quarter. Gee, gee that's a little foreshadowing. It's doing everything you can to make a play in the red zone. Sometimes the play breaks down and you have to get be creative. I'm not perfect, but football isn't always perfect. It doesn't always go the way you expect. I know that I might not have given the perfect answer for every one of your questions. You saw some mistakes on my tape, and I missed a couple of throws on Pro Day. But I hope you noticed that every answer I gave was sincere and that when I made a mistake on the field, I always held myself accountable. I hope you realize I can do a lot more than just throw the ball far. I don't want you, think, I don't want you to think that um, a big arm is the only thing that got me here. I'm a football player, and I'm ready to do the job as your quarterback. The Bears read that and said, "No thanks." <laughs> I, you know, I, I read it this. I read it for the first time this morning. 
incredible. And I'm telling you, that letter should be required reading for anybody playing the game. It really, it, it, this is outstanding. And this is, you know, this is five, five, six years ago now. Um, I, he closes, I will not whine or complain during the process. I won't be a distraction on or off the field. I will put in the hours to master your playbook. I won't stop until I get everything right down to the smallest detail. I may make mistakes along the way, and I won't win every single game I play during my career. I won't retire with a perfect passer rating or zero career inceptions, but I'll try as hard as anybody. And, and the Bears said, um, we'll go with Mitch Trubisky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could uh, you could like just randomly select anybody who's played fantasy football for five days and have well, maybe, Matt Mah- Pat Mahomes on well, that well, draft Maybe they thought he was Grifton, man. Maybe they thought he was just you know. Maybe he thought he was a good writer, yeah. better writer than quarterback. Well, but, I, I don't know how they thought that if they saw him play at Texas Tech. Um, also, too, the you know he talked about it in his letter what he learned from watching his dad. Uh, pitch in the majors and and you know learning the work ethic that was required and the the grind that that is and so I mean I just I just thought going back six years not to mention how precocious not not to point out just how precocious he was but also just of course because that Bears pick will live in infamy the way that uh, Sam Bowie over Jordan will live in right. infamy for the Blazers or something yeah uh, did 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 you uh, get into the Super Bowl ads at all you know I no. I mean, I was watching at home, and I, I didn't go to the Super Bowl party that I was, to which I was invited. So I watched with my wife, who knows absolutely nothing about football. Uh-huh. She watches for the commercials. I'm going to the fridge when they come on. What to be honest with what you, what about Rihanna? Oh man, that would I, look. I'm a look. I am a pop culture moron. I don't know one Rihanna yeah, right. song. Okay. okay, all right. But I looked at this woman. Yeah. Who had this, you know, she had like a paunch, man. Well, she's pregnant. Like, she looked like me. Well, she's, pre- but she's pregnant. <laughs> she has an excuse. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, she looked like, I didn't know that. I didn't know I she didn't was I didn't know pregnant. she was either, but I mean, and I she, just but she had a figured, puff, I figured she, she, she wasn't she, drinking beer. She, she yeah. had a really puffy face. Yeah. She wasn't like beautiful, like. Like J Lo, man, you know, or something, you know, like, like, oh, and, and you know, and, oh, and she had really getting all, and all of these, all of these, um, who are these? What, what was the point of those, those people in white suits? The like dancing sunglasses. Ewoks thing. Yeah, I, I, I like the dancing Ewoks and I like the Ariel. I thought it was, I thought it was kind of, I actually thought it was kind of cool. It must have been eight hundred of them. I also thought it was really impressive. She went through not only that she could still move a little bit, she's pregnant, but that she went through the uh, catalog of her songs, you know, seamlessly. There's a there's a lot. Oh, of really? Songs you know she, a lot of her songs. Yeah, I mean, I hear it on the radio. So, but I mean, there's a lot of there was a lot of songs that she went through, you know, playing just a, a few, uh, singing just a few lines from each over the course of that that uh, performance. I, I thought that was actually pretty good, and you, I, you know, I, I want when, to be critical. When it was over, I just looked at my wife and said. Is that all there is? I mean, I just did. did, didn't. Your, did your wife like it? She recognized this. She, she, yeah, she did, because she was sitting there like, you know, mesmerized by it. Yeah, I was like, you know, looking for you know another glass of wine. I don't and, know. I mean, given maybe it's given previous halftime shows where like the weekend takes us to the gates of hell. I thought this was you know this was good and and sort of center cut and it was artistically pleasing to view and yeah okay. michael strahan seemed to like it 
I saw he was dancing on the sideline. Michael Strahan, he's a man of a million places and things, and he goes everywhere, right? He's like he he, he is he's he a no, nobody nobody's leveraged their uh, their NFL career better than Michael Strahan. Yeah, he's no got the Nate and two networks uh, paying him. Well, all right, we'll get to uh, some Super Bowl ads, uh, despite Charles' lack of interest a little bit later on in the show. I, I but... did. I watched some of them. I, I, was, I didn't go out and buy, like, a, a, a new electric EV. Because Will Ferrell's because driving around in one. I didn't yeah. go out and get some Doritos, although I like Doritos, you know, the different varieties of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Mobile. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and in for Amy this morning. Former ABC7 political reporter Charles Thomas. We were talking a little bit about the Super Bowl. We'll get back to some other aspects of the Super Bowl, not the game itself, but some of the other cultural aspects a bit later. Charles, you're happy about the Chiefs. Are you happy about your choices for mayor of the city of Chicago? Where where are you on the mayor's race as we stand here just a couple of weeks from primary day? Let me begin with a disclaimer that I do not understand how the vast majority of Chicagoans vote. I usually vote <laughs> in the opposite direction. Okay, that done. Right now, I think that Paul Vallis clearly will win a plurality of the vote probably the high 20%. The real dogfight will be over who can finish second and can face Vallis in the runoff. And believe me, that person who finishes second could very well emerge as the favorite in the runoff. But that could be, you name it, um, that, that could be Chewy uh, Garcia, that could be Brandon Johnson, that could be, of course, uh, the incumbent, although I think she's in real trouble. and Or, or it could be Willie Wilson, um, depending on how well he's able to um, appeal to voters uh, outside the black community. Um, and I'm sensing that he might be doing better at that uh, lately. And a lot of the libs in Chicago are saying that his comment about hunting them down like rabbits is hurting him. Well, I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. I think I think people understand that he doesn't want to go out and shoot people like you'd shoot a rabbit. I mean, he they know that because they know Willie Wilson. Of course. Yeah, so, but, but if he's going to be aggressive 
about fighting crime, then that is appealing, I believe, to voters of all stripes all over the city because that is, and I live in the city, downtown, that is the major problem facing Chicago right now. That's what's chasing the businesses out of the city of Chicago, chasing the premium taxpayers, if you will, as I'll call them, out of the city of Chicago. <coughs> Excuse me. So I, I, what, what, is, what does Willie need to do to get from, you know, the 12 to 15 percent to that pocket where the other candidates are ostensibly, you know, the second place candidate that makes the runoff in particular, you know, upper teens to low 20s? What does he need to do? He needs to get a white person to say, I'm voting for Willie Wilson. And he needs to have that person on a commercial. And it doesn't have to be some high-profile white person. It has to be a white person who lives in a neighborhood who's concerned about the city to say that he shares or she shares Willie's concern to get over this race thing. Because, you know, the... What about you? What about you? Has he used Ray Lopez, Alderman Ray Lopez, enough? I mean, work. I mean, I think that works. That helps. Yeah, helps. He needs a northwest sider, a 19th warder from the southwest side. Somebody like that. Uh, to say, I'm voting for Willie Wilson because Willie is going to be the guy that's going to get this city back under control. And the other thing, too, is that as a black man, I am interested in Willie Wilson because I know that Willie Wilson can do what needs to be done. I mean, there, there there's going to have to, because they're going to, if, if Paul Vallis does it or, or Chewy does it, and we know Lori isn't doing it. If they if they were elected and they had to do it, then they get they'd be called a racist because it's going to have to it's going to have to be done. I mean, you know, Brandon Johnson talks about going after the root causes of crime and job programs and all that stuff. Right. What are you going to do to help the person get home from work tomorrow night tomorrow on the red line? Right. And and ride the buses. What are you going to do now? And I think Willie is saying, I know what has to happen now. We have to really be firm about law and order in the city. And, and you know, he can do it, whereas I don't think Paul Vallis can do it and, and or Chewy can do it without a lot of pushback. Uh, with respect to so – it's interesting. Why – is that a fault of Willie Wilson, the campaign? Is it a nature of the racial politics of the city? Is it uh, attendant to what people generally think about Willie Wilson, particularly uh, even, even though he enjoys some Republican Party support, like from me? Um, is it is it why why can't are they not thinking that way? Um, why doesn't he do that where he has somebody from the 19th Ward or the Northwest Side say, listen? This isn't about race. This is about who gets the job done. And this guy is the only one who's uh, got the the sobriety and the wherewithal to do the things that need to be done to make this city safer. I, I think, you know, Willie's big problem, if I can just say this first, is that he's just not the communicator. Yeah, right. He's not. But right. I think his handlers, his handlers don't have the range to do that. Uh, Ricky Hendon, the former state senator. Hollywood Hendon. Hollywood Hendon, Hendon is, is handling a lot of um, uh, Willie's uh, campaign. And Ricky just doesn't have the range to do 
what he needs to do, let's say in the far southwest side, 19th Ward, or um, or in the northwest side, uh, and and I think that is a problem. Maybe they can fix. They they've got time to fix it. Not much. Uh, not much, but they've got some time. Yeah. And maybe they're working on this. I mean, I they haven't talked to certainly. I haven't talked to them about it, but I think that would help Willie because Willie, I think, re, bottom line. If if you go beyond the surface stuff and the the scurrilous charges that Lori Lightfoot makes and this stuff about hunting them down like rabbits, if you get past that, I mean, I think Willie Willie is the only one with any real conservative bona fides, right? I mean, let's face it. I mean, he's a he's a he's a former Trump voter. He he supported Republican candidates for governor. Mm-hmm. He's he's a business person, a free enterprise guy. Uh, the language thing, of course, is a problem. But if you go past all that, I mean, I think he can appeal to the moderate, the conservative uh, people in the city. Now, you know, this isn't a very moderate or conservative city. I get that. No, but when you're when you're in a race to 20 percent and, you know, you have a a certain percentage of the the black vote. And if you could make an appeal to and and gather a significant percentage of the one in six and a half voters who identify as Republicans in the city, well, and then you're starting to cook with fire a little bit, at least to get to the runoff. To get to the runoff, exactly. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised he hasn't made more of a, a formal overture in that direction because you do have to stitch this together, stitch these coalitions together. And I also think that, um, I mean, he shared the story of his son, which, um, which is a powerful story, and it certainly provides more layering to him. But I also think he needs to, and, and we had him on the show and we talked about this. I talked about this with him. I also think he needs to make his um, style of communication an asset rather than a liability. And he had a riff when I sort of pressed him on it because nobody's gonna, nobody has the guts to just ask him about it when everybody knows and he knows too. So it's like it's not like a secret. So And he's just say, he basically said, look, I'm comfortable with this. This is who I am. This represents, you know, my life's journey, and it also is a signal to people that maybe uh, have their own struggles that, look, you can have your own struggles with uh, oration or whatever they may be, and you can still find success in business the way I found. You can still be run for mayor of the city of Chicago, one of the biggest cities in America. And I, I, I thought that, that's a great answer, and it's a, I think it's an authentic answer. And I think, I think his authenticity doesn't, you know, he needs to be packaged packaging authenticity but what i'm saying needs to be communicated uh to a broader audience so that people see it and the handle on on him isn't just always um a snippet oh where it's he's hard to decipher or you know these ghastly debates that are non-debates right yeah he he you know willie wilson is a composite of the black people who have come to chicago over the last 100 years during that so-called great migration he came here. He's got the eighth grade education. Um, in other words, he doesn't have a lot of formal education. A lot of them didn't have that either. But they came here and they found success. They found success. I mean, all you hear about from a lot of the people in Chicago are negatives. Willie is the epitome of the embodiment of the Great Migration and what it meant. He came here. He got involved in business. He worked hard. He started mopping floors at McDonald's. He grew it. He grew that business into another business. He is the American dream. And it's such and, a, you know, that's the other thing, too. I know the story goes 
that he, he went directly to Ray Kroc for a job. Well, after he had been mopping floors right. at McDonald's. Right. To, 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 I mean, not right, not a job, but to, to level up. Like, mm-hmm. how do I, how do I want to own a franchise one day? Right. Right. And that, I mean, so that's alone. And I, and I, like other franchise owners, or I just don't understand why it's, and I have the same criticism of, of people like Paul Vallis too. I don't understand why they're not bringing more people in to display some of, uh, and give more understanding of who they are and what they've done. Why don't we see people from, Philly and 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 New Orleans, in addition to Chicago, standing up with Paul Vallis and saying, you know, he was instrumental in turning our schools around and making and providing educational opportunities to people who have been left behind for so long in New Orleans and Philadelphia, just as he did in Chicago 30 years ago and so on and so forth. You know, stitch it together for us. Stitch a life together for us. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you know, Willie can Willie has an opportunity to, to again, he is the embodiment of that, but I think in terms of like the crime situation, Willie can speak to this issue in the black community that nobody wants to talk about, and that is the the uh, proliferation of single parent families and what that has meant to the uh, to to what to the community, and the fact that black women are not being married anymore. You got this baby daddy, baby mama culture that has taken over. Um, and I think Willie is a person that can address that kind of thing and that black folks will listen to him. If you if you decreased the number of children, being raised, black children, being raised in single-parent families, and right now it's around 80%, can you believe that? 80% of black children being raised in single-parent families. You reduce, you reduce that number, and I guarantee you, you reduce poverty, You'll reduce crime. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Ron Southside, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, Dan. Uh, good to hear you, uh, Charles. Good morning, Ron. Uh, two things. Yeah, two things. Uh, Brent, Brandon Johnson said uh, seniors and people with disabilities should be able to ride um, CTA-free. Those are the most vulnerable people on CTA. I'm a senior. I'm not getting on CTA. <laughs> you can pay me, let alone a discount. Boy, but, but but real quick, and Charles, I, you said that you feel as if uh, Willie could uh, fix the problem relative to crime. I don't see any evidence of that, Charles. Maybe well, you can't. Well, I, I do. His story is great. Listen to what I just said, that if there is somebody out there that can speak to young people, black people, about what's happened to our family, our nuclear family. Somebody black who can speak to black people because right now the liberal establishment doesn't want to talk about that. They call no, you racist. Okay, can't turn that around. So you, so you got to start talking about that. that. That's my major complaint with no. Barack Obama, that during his second term, he did not address that problem. And I think okay, that if that let- problem is addressed, we can affect crime. We can affect oh, poverty we, if we start. 100%. If we start respecting the family again and move back toward the nuclear family and have okay. everybody talking about it, put up some billboards on that. You know, in in the black community, talking about family and re sure. reconstituting the black family. Okay, real quick. Keyword: What you said, young people. 
and communicating. His 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 appeal comes from older people like myself. But but he but can he can commission but, but the, he can, can commission that, young people to young do that. people. You, you you okay? You think that he's able to communicate effectively with young people out here with that message? I I just disagree, child. Communication is very very important. There are cultural differences, um, the age difference. I don't think he's an effective enough speaker to do that. But that's just just that, that's my thought. So good, good hearing you. And uh, it, it, but one thing about it, this is I, I don't really like any of the candidates. None of them really get me going. But I'm just trying to get it figured out. You guys have a good day. Thanks, hey. Ron. Appreciate yeah. it. Uh, Philip Blue Island. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the insult. If you're not married, and then this whole thing about uh, blacks not being in the household, that's an insult to all these young brothers that's out here taking care of their children that wants to be part of their life. So that's just an insult. Um, And again, Willie Wilson is unable to articulate anything that um, anybody who's probably younger than 50 can, you know, okay, you're going to give away gas and give away cards and, you know, all these gimmicks that he's doing. But then again, you get on a, a, a panel or a debate and you just sitting there just mean and can't articulate and attacking the women on the, on, on, on the panel and especially Lori Lightfoot, you know, so he comes across as a straight up conservative and just like you, Charles, it's just disappointing that you would say some of the things that you say to the black community and then expect somebody to uh, 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 come to your side or, or try to understand what you but no, it's just a bunch of insults and uh no you you if you Willie think Wilson it's an insult if you think right, that a on, man on, and Philip. woman living together, raising their children is an insult, then you take it the way you must. That's but not what I, I believe that a if you father a child and you are a mother and you give birth to a child, you have a responsibility to parent that child. And when the, these young saying, people Charles. are out here in the street sticking guns in people's faces, then those a lot of those people do not have, did not come from two-parent families. That's a fact. Well, I, and, I can't well, change that. And the other thing, Philip, and I put you on hold for a second, the other thing is, I mean, just Charles didn't say guys that had uh, a baby out of wedlock who are taking care of their kids are doing anything wrong. They're doing something right. Um, but we understand, and the <laughs> the scholarship on this is couldn't be more overwhelming that the best environment to raise kids is a intact two parent family. It doesn't mean that they're not heroic single moms and single dads that do it right, and and uh, kids turn out great. That's not the, saying that an eighty percent illegitimacy rate or a fifty percent illegitimacy rate in the white community. You can't say that is a good thing. It does not turn out well writ large. That's the point. Not that there are not exceptions. The the overall uh, product of that sort of culture is the issue. All right, Philip, go ahead. I understand, and I appreciate that. But uh, all I'm saying about that is the, the relationship and the language. Um, and if you're trying to get somebody to vote for you, that language is detrimental to anybody voting for you or appealing to you or liking you. And so when, when, when again, you, you're saying to these young people, okay, uh, they are in these children's lives, they're taken care of, but that's not mentioned. You know, you're well, always going to go to the marriage. I mean, that's meeting. good. But I'm saying that it's better if they are living uh, together, I, I, if, I, I, if I, they're I, married, living together in the same house with the child 
that they brought into this world. What's to say that they're not living in the house? Real quick, because I know I ain't got time. But what says they're not living in the house with the child? The statistics say that the woman is single, but that don't mean that she's not with the man is not in the house. That's that's a misnomer. Thanks thanks for the call, Philip. Well, I mean, again, what we know about uh, that cultural phenomena is that it doesn't work very well for most of the children, certainly in comparison to children in a more stable environment. And you think about it. That's all. That's all. I mean, it's just, it's like, this is, this is part of the problem is that Chicago is the base camp for beautiful lies. (laughs) And, And so you just, you can't just say something that is just absolutely true. And there's overwhelming evidence, all these men and women of data and science, uh, overwhelming evidence and say, yeah, I, I get it, and but I'm that, not attacking but anybody, but we just know what the best model is. But, Dan, that's why you have trouble saying that, because you get that kind of pushback that somehow I'm insulting somebody or that it's racist that, to say that. Nothing but is better than anything else. The matter is right. that it's better when right. a child is raised by the people that brought them into the world. Every, everything everybody does is morally equivalent and has an equal chance of success. That's not true. Every behavior is morally equivalent and has an equal chance of a successful outcome. That is not true. So, I mean, and if you're if you're insulted by that, then you're probably engaged in behavior that has a less less of a chance of success, and you don't want to be confronted by it. Mary Kay, Western Springs. Hi. Good morning. Um, you can hear me, okay? Um, I. I, I still think the um that it's gonna be it's gonna come down to Willie Wilson and Paul Vallis because I think you know, but the last caller, you know, obviously doesn't agree, but it, Willie has the history with the you know, he's gotta just get it across to the people about the sun and the business because that's very relatable to a lot of people, you know, didn't go to college. You know, smart people who um, found success. You know, you can get yeah. that message across, right? Thanks, thanks for the call, Mary Kay. We're up against the life put in her place. Thanks for the call, Mary Kay. We're up against the clock. Sorry to cut you off, but the other thing too, Philip said. You know, it's a gimmick. It's a gimmick when Willie Wilson says, over the course of how you know his adult life, he's as he said, the last debate, he's given away something like sixty million dollars to help people. That's a gimmick. But but if the, if the Pritzkers do it, they're wonderful philanthropists. <laughs> You know, I mean, I love it. Listen to podcasts of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. Mobile. 
This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, the truth, uh, but in for Amy this morning, I should hasten to add, is Charles Thomas, former ABC7 political reporter. The uh, truth may be out there, Charles, but I'm not sure we're getting it from the Pentagon, this uh, uh, slow motion alien invasion we're suffering or uh, it's not, you know, uh, or uh, or spy operation of the Chai Coms or I, we don't know what, you know, these latest ones appear to have come from the north, like over the pole. I mean, they, they haven't at least when I'm watching on the news because they have told us not much about what this stuff is. But who has a motivation to let Americans know that our airspace can be penetrated? Who would want? I think these are messages. Well, the, well, it's interesting you say that. I mean, we're, so now we're talking, just to set the table, we're talking about this um, airborne object, which was described as a small metallic balloon with a tethered payload. That was shot out of the sky by U.S. military over Canada on Saturday. And then Sunday, an octagonal object that looked like it had streamers attached to it. Was it a box kite? Uh, was shot down over Lake Huron on Sunday. And that's about all we know about the – we don't know anything about who owns them or what they were doing or what exactly the nature of these aircrafts were. And there's all sorts of all sorts of suggestions that – the, the one, according to pilots, lacked a propulsion system. And, you know, so now you're getting into X-File stuff here. But in terms of your question, you know, who has motivation? Uh, Mike McCall, who's the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, was on with Maria Bartiroma yesterday. And he had this to say, sort of backtracking to the, uh, uh, the TRICOM spy balloon from last week. Why do they want to do this? Well, they're preparing uh, if they don't. Uh, when the elections in Taiwan next January, they are preparing for a military conflict. And they're trying to collect information about our military capabilities in the United States in preparation for that conflict. There's no question about it in my mind. And that's why that balloon was so dangerous. And it was so dangerous for the president to allow it to go forward once it entered U.S. airspace around Alaska. It should have been immediately shot down. It was not, and now the damage is severe in terms of compromising national security. He can't secure our borders, but now he can't secure our airspace. Uh, What do you make of the um, UFOs and extraterrestrials and Chinese spy balloons and separating (laughs) them all out from one another? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. Retired General Keith Kellogg was on Fox talking about both the object that was shot down on Saturday. And importantly, he thought, uh, sort of flying in formation with Mike McCall, if you will, uh, Chinese communist non-responsiveness on the matter. What's amazing to me when they talk about an object and getting it shot down, the first report in war is always wrong. So it's going to kind of say, what's going to happen? Where's this going to? And the fact that they use the term object, they didn't use weather balloon Mm -hmm. or something similar. 
And when you think about, I said, okay, well, they, a drone doesn't fly that high. It can't get up to that altitude, about 35,000. Mm -hmm. And the weather balloons generally travel at 60,000 feet or higher. So you got something in between. So what exactly do you have? Do you have a weather balloon that didn't get to altitude? Or do you have a drone, a new drone out there that has gone to that altitude? So they're not telling us probably what we need to know. And the phraseology of object, it should be bothersome. Yep. Mike, you know, honestly, John, my concern is the fact that we responded to this, which is important. Mm -hmm. But I think more importantly is what are we going to respond to and how are we going to make a point known that if you do come into our, in our territory, our sovereign nation, national territory, what are we going to do about it? And the fact that the Chinese will not even accept a call. You know, we put that hotline in in 2007 mm -hmm. with the Chinese, and Lloyd Austin can't even get a, a call through. Right. It's kind of, it, that does bother me. It, it, I'm bothered by the fact that they can penetrate U.S. Air, airspace, apparently at will, with these slow-moving uh, devices, whatever they are, and what the message is that we are vulnerable. That's the bottom line, and I'm just a guy who uh, lives in Chicago who can see that we are vulnerable. Now, I want to speak Ukraine for a minute. I would think the Russians have a real motivation here to send us that kind of message because as things escalate in Ukraine, the Red Army supply lines are in Russia. If you're fighting the, the Russians, so maybe you want to disrupt their supply lines. Are they telling us that if you do that, we're going to disrupt your supply lines? And this time around, not unlike 1917, it won't be happening over there. It's going to be here. And that's a message that I take from all this, that in this nuclearized world with ICBMs, if we can't shoot down a balloon going 50, 60 miles an hour, what are we going to do with a hypersonic missile at ICBM? I, I, that, that, and now, keep in mind, I don't know this stuff. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, just a taxpayer. Yeah, citizen. I get it. But that, that concerns me that maybe this could be the beginning of a real effort to, to uh, defuse this situation in Ukraine, which I think is slowly but steadily growing out of get, getting out of control. We'll get uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano's take on that at the top of the 7 o'clock hour. I don't know that this would be I'd, be... I'd be a bit surprised if this was Russian in orientation, if this was a Putin initiative. But, um, you know, uh, anything's possible under, under the sun, and the um, sort of... Uh, unacknowledged collaboration of Xi and Putin on certain things because of, not because of friendship, but because of shared interest uh, of uh, defenestrating America as the world's superpower. Hmm. You know, uh, everybody's got a role to play when you're talking about the axis of evil or the updated axis of evil. Or the Chinese could be doing the same thing. Well, and letting a, us know that, well, hey, look. Well, clearly they're, I mean, clearly per the, the you know, the luffed balloon from last week. Yeah, that's that's the case. But I, I also, the, the, the just the, the lack of disclosure from the Pentagon or the lack of knowledge or the combination of the two. And I mean, you know, you can't take anything you get from the Pentagon at, at face value. But and I know there's a recovery mission going on with respect to the object that was shot down over uh, 
over Canadian, veered into Canadian airspace, shot down over Alaska on Saturday. But just the, this briefing from National Security Council spokesbeing John Kirby, uh, you know, trying to, as reporters, um, including Fox's Jackie Heinrich, are trying to get uh, just sort of the basics on this. The Pentagon ordered this new object be taken down over Alaska. The president ordered it. The president ordered it. So is it a fair takeaway then that the Pentagon regrets not taking down the first balloon before it crossed the entire U.S.? Well, I'm not going to speak for the Pentagon. I can tell you that the president doesn't regret the, the way that we uh, handled the first balloon. Um, that time we – first of all, apples and oranges here in terms of size. As I said, this was size of a small car, and it was over uh, – a very sparsely populated area, but also more critically over – it was over water, water space when we ordered this down as we did the – as uh, we did the last one. But completely different size. Um, and um, the debris field f for this uh, we expect to be much, much smaller than would have been for the other one. That's difference one. Difference two, uh, we knew for a fact that the PR PRC balloon that we shot down last week was, in fact, a surveillance asset. Um, and capable of surveillance over sensitive military sites, and that it had self-propulsion and maneuver capabilities. There's no indication that this one did. The other one, the first one, was able to maneuver and loiter, slow down, speed up. Um, it was very, it was very purposeful that flight path within inside the inside the, the jet stream. So, if you could distinguish the second one from the first one, then what's your overall handle on what the second one is? Right? I mean, you're describing things, but you won't tell me what you think you're describing. Um, uh, John Kirby, uh, was there any communication coming from the object uh, desirous of Reese's Pieces? Was it possible? Was he, was he asking for Drew Barrymore? Uh, I, I mean, I, it's, honestly, it's just a little bit silly. Bill in LaSalle County are on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hi. Um, one thing I would think of, of a balloon or something over Lake Huron is, they could be mapping out uh, the locks at Sault Ste. Marie because if they could disrupt uh, the, the ship commerce from Lake Superior down into the other Great Lakes, you're talking you can prevent the flow of copper and especially iron ore from the, from that region. And well, if you look at the way the other balloon, the way the other balloon traversed, it went over very many important sites, including the Boeing fighter jet factory in St. Louis, Missouri, as well as Oak Ridge. Yeah, right. Yeah, Oak Ridge had been mentioned by McCall, too. Yeah, thanks for the call, Bill. Uh, those are smart comments. Lewis on the south side. Good morning, Dan. They sending us a message. Uh, well, not a message. Uh, you know that Valentine's Day is, what, uh, tomorrow on the 14th? Sure is. Better remember. Yeah, yeah ha they, they saying, the, the, the Chinese are saying, Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? They doing this. Because uh, who's that, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin? He went down to uh, the Philippines trying to reestablish some bases down there so that they could uh, uh, have some type of offense against the uh, uh, Chinese in case they try to do something uh, against the Taiwanese. But, uh, and, and, and so that's the response right there is happy birthday, no, happy Valentine's Day. Baby. Thanks for the call, Louis. You could have just sent flowers. Uh, John... What time is it in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Louis has, uh, he likes to use um, 
colorful metaphors, which we appreciate. <laughs> uh, Senator John Tester, he's a Democrat, Montana. He was none too happy about the Biden administration's lethargy and shooting down the spy balloon last week. He was on Face the Nation yesterday talking about the reported radar anomaly over Montana. And then he made the larger point, uh, and again, he sits on the defense committee in the Senate, the larger point about the need for sort of a policy here, uh, is this going to be sort of one-off depending on what we believe objects are, or is it about our airspace or particular uh, sections of our airspace? We need some more detail from Team Biden. The truth is, is that there was an anomaly and they've investigated. I think it got dark last night, so they couldn't fully check it out. I'm sure as we speak, it's being checked out right now. So it hasn't been ruled out. There may still be something out there. Absolutely. There may still be something out there. It, it may be a false alarm. Okay. So there's something over the Yellowstone Ranch in Montana. Maybe there's uh, an octagonal craft of some kind over Lake Huron. There's a... a a small metallic balloon the size of a small car with a tethered payload over Alaska, and nobody can provide any more description or detail on it, which is what is... I think your boy Jim Acosta at CNN well, suggested that it was like maybe... Uh, you they're know, here. They're here. Right? <laughs> yeah. What's gone on the last uh, you know, two weeks or so, 10 days, has been uh, nothing short of... Um, craziness. And uh, the military needs to have a plan to not only determine uh, what's out there, but determine the dangers that go with it. That seems sensible. And also provide some more disclosure, timely disclosure to the American people that's credible, as opposed to Jim Acosta playing Pictionary with us. Uh, Excuse me, um, John Kirby playing Pictionary with us. Jim Acosta, as you were mentioning, Charles, on CNN, this, uh, you haven't had a discussion this intelligence since Don Lemon was uh, positing that MH370 was uh, swallowed in a black hole. It's interesting. This is kind of unusual that these pilots saw different things, and that is sort of, I guess, adding to the mystery of all this. Yeah, not even the pilots apparently were really able to identify what they saw. And just to take you back for a sec, on Thursday, the uh, the U.S. defense officials sent F-35 fighter jets up to try to figure out what this object was that was flying around near Alaska. Those pilots, we have learned, have given very conflicting accounts of what they actually experienced, with some pilots saying that the, the object interfered with the plane's sensors, other pilots saying that they didn't really experience that, other pilots saying that when they looked at the object, they could identify no identifiable uh, identifiable propulsion system, and they did not know how it was actually staying in the air, cruising at that altitude of about 40,000 feet. So this has all added to the Pentagon's wariness of describing in more detail what this object actually is until they can get more information uh, through the debris that they are recovering right now. Mm. Sounds like my favorite adult, uh, episode of Battlestar Galactica. Dan and Charles Thomas in for Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in frame this morning is Charles Thomas, former ABC7 political reporter, also a radio talk show host. You were on WVON. For a minute, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. 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 Been around this uh, 
business quite a bit, quite a while. Yeah, 50, it's 50 years this year. Uh, I think you're going to make it. I think you're going to make really? it in this business. You think so? Yeah, after your probationary okay. period's over. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, let's talk about this uh, fascinating story emanating from the Telluride Association. Uh, Vincent Lloyd is the director of Africana Studies at Villanova University. He's the author of a book called Black Dignity, which is described as, quote, a radical work by one of the leading young scholars of black thought, an effort to describe the philosophy underlying the Black Lives Movement. And he was forced into exile, as he writes in Compact, by 12 high school students that had been chosen by the Telluride Association to spend six weeks together taking a college-level course, all expenses paid. Now, it's not so much these 12 high school students, although it includes them, as it is his teaching assistant that's provided by the Telluride Association, a woman he just describes as... uh, Keisha, names is Keisha. It, it's fascinating. This is, um, this is like a new level of the story of the snake eating its tail. Yeah, I mean that's happening in a lot of places or, around the country. I, to be honest with you, uh, Dan, I haven't read the complete article, um, but I know the general dynamic here. Well, right. It's it's funny that. Um, Vincent Lloyd didn't know it, you know, and he talks about this too. I mean, it's a very honest piece. He, he talks about, uh, uh, he makes reference after this experience, which we'll get to in a moment to, uh, John McWhorter's book, uh, calling that, uh, termed, um, the anti-racism, uh, uh, cult. Uh, it was an idea I quickly dismissed. Um, he doesn't quickly dismiss it so much anymore. He writes that um, you had uh, these 12 high school kids come together. And he talked about them. These are, you know, um, intelligent, uh, uh, intelligent young people that are excited to be there. At least they were initially. Four weeks later, you know, six-week program, I sat in front of the gathered students. Now their faces were cold, their eyes down. Since the first week, I had not spotted one smile. Their number was reduced by two. The previous week, they had voted two classmates out of the house. They're all living together. Mm -hmm. And I was next. Each student read from a prepared statement about how the seminar perpetuated anti-black violence in its content and form, how the black students had been harmed. Remember, they're talking to the professor about this, Vincent Lloyd. High school kids. Right. And and all sort of... um, falling in formation with Keisha, the teaching assistant provided by the Telluride Association. Will the Telluride Association do anything about this? No, we'll get to that. Uh, How I was guilty of countless microaggressions. He's guilty of countless microaggressions. This is a guy who wrote the book Black Dignity, a radical work by one of the leading young scholars of black thought, including through my body language among his microaggressions, and how students didn't feel safe because I didn't immediately correct views that failed to treat anti-blackness as the cause of all the world's ills. He wants to remind us 
that the seminar topic was race and the limits of law in America. And four of the six weeks were focused on anti-black racism. The other two were on anti-immigrant and anti-indigenous racism. I'm a black professor, he writes. I directed my university's black studies program. I led anti-racism and transformative justice workshops. And I have published books on anti-black racism and prison abolition. I live in a predominantly black neighborhood in Philly. My daughter went to an Afrocentric school, and I'm on the board of our local black cultural organization. I'm sorry, that's not good enough. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it isn't. It isn't good enough in today's world. I mean, that's that's what you get, and you you're somehow interpreted to be anti-black if you don't fo- follow the. I guess the. I guess this is a new uh, train of thought that kids have in particular. Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting to get your perspective on this because he, he actually harkens back to the 60s. He, he makes mention in, in, into the 70s. My thoughts turn to the moment in the 1970s when leftist organizations imploded. The need to match and raise the militancy of one's comrades leading to a toxic culture filled with dogmatism and disillusion. And then he asks and he answers, how did this happen to a group of bright-eyed high school students? So what he sees is a bit of a repeat from the 60s civil rights movement moving into militancy and then a a one-upping of militancy that led to sort of the infighting and in in part the collapse. Although it really, if you look at it, I I guess I would argue that unfortunately the collapse was of the original – uh, vision and mission of the civil rights movement was which was legitimate, and then it moved into fifty years of race hustling, which is not legitimate. You know, I I was I was born in nineteen fifty one, and I went to high school in the sixties, and I was a self styled black militant in in the late sixties, and uh, I can remember elders. Speaking to me, hey, hey, cooler, cooler, cooler. You got to be cool. You got to be cool. But things were a lot more uh, defined then. I mean, there was a there was a fight, really, a struggle in this country over statutory racism, right? And um, which was made it made the, the your your points of reference very clear, very defined. You knew exactly what you had to do. You had to end segregation in public accommodations, and certainly voting rights. Um, and those things were accomplished. But then after that, I think people in my generation began to question what it was vaguely institutional racism. And we questioned, and then we got jobs in corporate America, and we stopped questioning, and we started raising our families and such. And, you know, America changed it changed over the 50 years now i've had people tell me it didn't change enough or it hasn't changed well yeah there are are people that have i mean i you know as i've long argued flying off of the work of people like shelby Steele and bob woodson and thomas all and others i mean there are people in this country that want it to be you know uh, early 1960s selma forever they oh, want absolutely. you to. They want you to believe oh, it is because because that's how they, their bread gets bought. Well, there's people today. Yeah, today. I had a, I had a person tell me last week, and I was on on our my, you know my own podcast, um, and my 
podcast partner told me that things for black people were worse today than they were in 1955. And this, this, is, this is an intelligent person. I said, really? Are you kidding? I said, How, what happened to you? How did you do this? How did the guy who is uh, president in the um, president of Chicago Bears, that guy, I mean, where did he come from? How did that guy succeed? Yeah, the Big Ten what, conference before. Yeah. Right, what, yeah. what did he do? Right. I mean, he built a stadium in, in Minnesota or something. I said, what did he do? How did he, how did he make it through this web of racism? And, and uh, of course, there is no real answer. But there are going to be people that are going to say that um, it's worse today than it was. Well, I can remember growing up, I grew up in a former slave state, Missouri, uh, where there were signs. I remember them clearly said whites only right. restaurants you could not go into. I remember my parents holding picket signs walking in front of these places uh-huh. to try to try to integrate them or, or whatever they, they called it in those days. So when I hear people today talk about this institutional racism and how it has to be fixed, number one, I ask, how do you fix it? And I believe, aren't things better today than they were back then? And they won't, they won't accept that because they didn't live back then. They didn't know. They just don't know. And, I'm, and, and when I talk about my grandfather, who I knew, who I talked to, and remember, and what he went through, and my father, who was born in 1915, what he went through, uh, and I think about what happened to me in my life. I went through stuff, but I can honestly believe that it's better today. Also, I've been able to travel around the world, other continents, and I will honestly say to you today and to anyone who is listening, that the United States of America with black, Asian, Latino, white, people from all over the world is the least, least racist country I've ever visited. The least. And Three, three, three one two six four two fifty six hundred 642 5600 turnkey.pro answer line, 646-360-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Trish Northside, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hi, South Loop calling. Oh, yes, South Loop. hi, Sorry. Mr. Charles Thomas and Dan. Yes, I too am a baby boomer. I'm 70. I grew up in the era where church bells rang all over the United States, as you also will recall, mm-hmm. where the church preached against sin. But now we have a church that's preaching prosperity, and we're receiving the results thereof. The out-of-wedlock birth is a cycle, a cycle of poverty and crime which we, our own black people, have put upon ourselves, and we're reaping that. No Willie Wilson is going to change that. He, too, is, comes from the time of way back when, but he is also a prosperity preacher. And this is the problem. These children are not going to listen. There's a cultural gap. Remember, Mr. Charles Thomas, there was called a generation gap. This is a cultural gap. It's in the kindergarten, the high school, the college, the TV, from the White House to the pulpit. There is no way to return. When you have 13 and 12-year-olds carjacking, they have no conscience. They're not afraid of parents. There's no parents. This is the result of out-of-wedlock births, and we have to reap 
what we have sown. No one is telling these young people to close their legs like Charles Thomas. You know we heard that when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. The key is the church, and it has failed miserably trading Christ's gospel for money and prosperity, and we are reaping the rewards. This is the consequences of no truth. These teenage kids are not going to listen to Willie Wilson. They're not going to listen to the police. They're killing the police. These things are unheard of when we were growing up. It's the lack of morals and foundation that the church gave us Charles Thomas, and this is the fact. I agree with you. I I, I agree with you 100%, but I think, but I'm not willing to give up at this point. I would love to see us begin to say what you say through the media. I mean, think about it, uh, guys. Last night, last night, the the half, the half, listen, I know, but last night, the halftime show was dominated by a baby mama. I mean, Rihanna is a baby mama. She How are you going to fight that back? This huh? is no, I'm, but I'm saying, but what, what, but what I'm saying is, you're right. It, it has become cultural. But can't we move this aircraft carrier slowly as we can? But we got to try. We just can't okay. give you up. You keep on thinking that you can try. The only answer is for the Lord to return because these children have run over the streets. There's a criminal mindset. They're on the train pushing people on the track. They're not listening to us. They will not listen to Willie Wilson. It is a chasm that is too deep. You have the schools teaching kids things they ought not to know onto the TV, the commercials. It is too, you can keep believing if you want to. Maybe that makes you no, feel I'm better. hoping. I'm not but believing. I, truth, I believe what I see. I'm hoping. It's too late, my friend. It is way too late. And they going to listen to no old Republican that you mentioned Trump. I have a girlfriend. I don't want to hear nothing. Trump got is hate, hate, even though she's a Christian. She doesn't want to hear anything about anybody that's a conservative. She goes to church and she's against the homosexual agenda, LGBT. But if it's a Republican or conservative like you talking, she will not listen. Just like that man that called in and wanted to uh, make uh, make himself right because there's some people that's taking care of their children, even though they're not in the house with them. Uh, no, you're not right, sir. We need a two-parent foundation. You look at any foreign national person from the Philippines to over to Africa, they believe in having marriage of a man and a woman. You have the whole society from kindergarten to college teaching perversion. What are you going to do about that? You cannot take it out of the schools. It's entrenched. They cannot have children. Therefore, they are using the schools as a missionary field to convert. What are you going to do about that? It's hopeless, sir. I'm sorry. Trish, thank you for the call. appreciate it. I wasn't going to interrupt Trish. I don't know what to do, man. I, I mean, she, I know. She brought well, it, man. You know. Well, I mean, she. I. I, I mean, I, I. wish I could disagree with her, um, but I. You know, you do want to hold out. Hope. I. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, couple two things. I would say one is I've always believed, at least from my perspective, that um, if you're going to have a renaissance in the Republican Party, I mean, sort of a real sustained one. 
uh, you're going to have to have black conservatives lead. That, that's, Absolutely. That's one. You know, I, hey, I, you know, you, you, get, and, you get no pushback from me on that one. It, I mean, the, you know, the time, the time for us honkies, myself included, is over. We need to step aside. Number two, and by the way, there's a good piece in the Wall Street Journal this weekend about um, a couple of newly minted congressmen who are uh, uh, persons of color and sort of and, and also young and representing perhaps a generational shift and improvement. The other thing is this story that we're talking about with Vincent Lloyd of Villanova. And maybe if Vincent Lloyd has the scales fall from his eyes, then you'll have the left pull itself back a, a little bit from the abyss such that you know they, they, they won't indulge things like what happened at this Telluride Association seminar. I mean, he describes, just give you an example. During our discussion of incarceration, an Asian-American student cited a federal inmate demographic. About 60% of those incarcerated are white. The black students said they were harmed by the presentation of that statistic. They had learned in one of their workshops that objective facts are a tool of white supremacy. Mm. Outside of that seminar, I was told the black students had to devote a great deal of time to making right the harm that was inflicted on them by hearing prison statistics that were not about blacks. Again, this is a radical black pro-BLM professor recounting what he witnessed, and he was surprised. I don't know why he's surprised. He hasn't been paying close enough attention, but um, but he's surprised enough that he ended up leaving that seminar. He's like, I'm done. I can't, I can't work well, under these conditions. So if he can't, then maybe there will be some sort of reckoning by the center left on the radical left. Maybe that's wishful thinking. Um, no. I mean, I, I think that the uh, center right has to deal with the extreme right. I think we all need to come back to the middle. But it's going to take it's going to take, for instance, on these people on leftists who think that when I talk about nuclear family that I'm out to lunch. No, 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 no. You can't deny that. Yeah, you can't deny it. And you're going to have to come in this this direction. And anybody who's some dyed-in-the-wool, hardcore Nazi racist is going to have to understand that what's happening there is not going— this country can't survive like that, not in its current configuration, well, maybe, certainly. And they've got to come to the middle. Maybe maybe, maybe Trisha's right. Maybe it's time for rapture, and uh, maybe we saw an indication of it. Did you see— the Christ the Redeemer statue outside of Rio got struck by lightning. Did you oh, see really? And did you oh. know that 35,000 people oh. are dead in Turkey oh, and yeah. Syria now? Oh, yeah. And the Lord said in Matthew 24, there would be birth pains before he came. Now, I read scripture, and this isn't a... <laughs> you're not predicting the apocalypse. I get it. Oh, it. it's just, coming, man! Just, I, just, you know, I didn't it. predict it. I didn't predict it. No, I mean, I'm. You're not predicting it. You know, tomorrow. Well, it could happen twenty minutes from now. Well, hopefully, I, hopefully, it, hopefully, and that's can, and that's it can wait till at least nine o'clock. Yeah. I mean, gosh. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM five sixty mobile app. Download it today at five sixty theanswer dot com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer.
Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy this morning is former ABC7 political reporter Charles Thomas. Over the weekend, uh, we got briefings from national security spokesman John Kirby, if that's not an alien. That's assume John Kirby's body. We don't know. We don't know anything right now, Charles. <laughs> no, we don't. And that's amazing from what is supposed to be the most transparent administration in American history. Of course. Well, And John Kirby could distinguish the object, small metallic ball, um, size of a small car, uh, could distinguish it. The, the, that object that was shot down over Alaska over the weekend from the Chai Com spy balloon from the week before, but he couldn't give us any sense of the nature or purpose of it. The Pentagon ordered this new object be taken down over Alaska. The president ordered it. The president ordered it. So is it a fair takeaway then that the Pentagon regrets not taking down the first balloon before it crossed the entire U.S.? Well, I'm not going to speak for the Pentagon. I can tell you that the president doesn't regret the the way that we. Uh, handled the first balloon. Um, that time, we first of all, apples and oranges here in terms of size. As I said, this was size of a small car, and it was over uh, a very sparsely populated area, but also more critically over it was over water, water space. When we ordered this down, as we did the as uh, we did the last one, but completely different size, um, and um, the debris field f- for this. Uh, we expect to be much, much smaller than would have been for the other one. That's difference one. Difference two, uh, we knew for a fact that the PRC balloon that we shot down last week was, in fact, a surveillance asset um, and capable of surveillance over sensitive military sites and that it had self-propulsion and maneuver capabilities. There's no indication that this one did. The other one, the first one, was able to maneuver and loiter, slow down, speed up, um, it was very, it was very purposeful that flight path within inside the inside the, the jet stream. Yeah. So what is, what what is the 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 new the new one? I mean, remember the spin from the Biden White House was they were spying on the spy balloon that was spying on us. They had uh, put up shields on sensitive targets and they were tracking, tracking, tracking. We were pulling information from the spy balloon. We did a jujitsu there. Well, why can't you do a jujitsu with that object that was floating over Alaska? It's all very bizarre, and it's trying the patience of Democrats and Republicans alike. Democrat Senator John Tester from Montana on Face the Nation. What's gone on the last, uh, you know, two weeks or so, 10 days, has been uh, nothing short of um, craziness. And uh, the military needs to have a plan to not only determine uh, what's out there, but determine the dangers that go with it. And House Intel Chairman Mike Turner was on with Jake Tapper, uh, expressing frustration about uh, not being briefed by the Biden administration, just having to be briefed by the cable news channels. You know, this is particularly annoying about this administration. The, the Biden administration needs to stop briefing Congress through our television sets and actually come and sit down and brief us. What we're seeing here is a number of announcements by the administration without any real information being given to Congress. This could be because they don't have any information from the press conference we saw, it does seem like they took this action without a real understanding for what they were going after, but having declared it a hazard. But we'll see as the information comes to Congress. But I I do think that there needs to be more engagement between the administration and Congress. Probably they're a little hesitant after the Chinese balloon fiasco, where they let it go across the country to great criticism, bipartisan and bicameral criticism from Congress. 
For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, the Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation and author of the book Brutal War, Jungle Fighting in Papua New Guinea, 1942. Jim, have the visitors arrived? Yeah, could can you play the bite? Get, did I, can I play what bite? Which bite? Could, can you... <laughs> it is balloon. <laughs> okay. No, I, no, no. I just when the first everybody has their favorite started, bite on this. Yeah, right. When the first incident started, I my just mind immediately went to that. What a presumption! Oh, but it also it just reminds me of how this this administration's reaction, which does seem like something out of the Keystone Cops. Um, I look, I think I have an explanation for this. I will say, I understand why the administration might be a bit flummoxed because you have different objects here with different profiles. Um, and so, uh, and, and they, and they, and, and because they were smaller, maybe they didn't pick them up sooner. And, um, and so they're reticent to kind of just declare this, but they're going to get physical evidence. So we're going to get a bit of clarity on this in a couple of days and we have to just pow out. But, but I think there's an explanation that, that, that connects all these dots. This just makes sense. Well, what, what what is so it? You want to know what that? So <laughs> yeah. look, is no, it, you have to yeah. you have to link two stories together. Okay. One is the announcement last week by the U.S. government acknowledging for the first time that that um, China now actually has a bigger ICBM launcher force than we do. Uh-huh. So when you have that many ICBM launchers, they are useless unless you can target them. Because you have to hold the enemy's cities, that's the, and 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 nuclear response. You know our ability to shoot back, whether it's um, bombers or or land-based missiles, um, and command and control at risk. And for that, you need targeting data. Uh, and so, what these balloons uh, are perfectly designed to do is to gather signal intelligence that would help uh, round out. The targeting data, and then people, I think, they like, what's the big deal? You shoot a nuclear weapon at Montana, you're going to kill everything. Well, actually, you have to be, particularly if you're going after missile silos, you have to be pretty precise because the missile silo, silos are hardened, uh, and and a lot of these military targets are hardened. So you actually have to get a pretty good hit uh, to to take them out. And and they said, well, they have satellites. Well, the 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 great value of satellites is you're the eye in the sky. The disadvantage of that is you know when they're going to be overhead. So therefore you can, there are things you can just cover up that you can't see. And, and made, and from signal intelligence, you're absolutely a better, a far better and more efficient collector as a balloon flying overhead than a satellite in space. So I, I, I think, look, I think it was a deliberate campaign on the part of the Chinese to collect nuclear targeting down against the United States. Not surprising that they would send more than one asset to do this and that the assets would have different profiles and fly at different altitudes, looking for gaps in spaces in, in U.S. air defenses to get through. Uh, I, I think it, it seems to be all part of a deliberate campaign. You know, now that we're onto it, is it probably going to come to an end? My guess is probably yes. But I, I think that this was, I think this is a, a Chinese effort to gain more intelligence to target their nuclear missiles, period. Sir, this is Charles Thomas, who's uh, sub, subbing for Amy today. What's up with NORAD? I mean, I've been hearing about NORAD for decades. They right. can't pick up these 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 uh, devices when they fly well, clear- into this hemisphere, really. So um, clearly, the larger one they did. 
And that's not surprising. You had a, a big giant blip in the sky uh, that was actually clearly emitting, sending uh, transmissions back to China. Um, I think all the evidence is they picked that up before it came in U.S. airspace. And and they were actually just not talking about it. I mean, they, they were actually – had never planned, I, I don't think, to release this information. Um, we can talk about why they did that. But the smaller ones, I, I, you know, I think it's a more open question. They're smaller objects. They have different profiles. And, and I think maybe this is all part of an effort for the Chinese to find, you know, gaps in, in the neurobiology collective. So I will say something that people haven't really talked about, but it's really, really important. The first balloon flew at 60,000 feet. Nothing flies at 60,000 feet. Um, the, the last one that they just shot down, it was at 20,000 feet. Commercial airliners fly at 30,000 feet and below. That was a menace to air navigation. People could have got killed. It could have run into something. Or with all these jets flying around and, and tankers flying around fueling the jets and people shooting at stuff, somebody could have got killed. So if the Chinese are behind that, and we think they do, that was a, I wouldn't say it was an act of war, but that was an egregious, uh, dangerous act. Do you think that, that yeah, do, do you think that uh, Kirby, uh, if that is John Kirby and it's not a reptilian humanoid that's uh, occupying John Kirby's body, do you think John Kirby knows what the two objects that were shot down over the weekend are? Do you think they have a handle, a pretty good handle on what they are, and they know the answer to the, the question? They could say yes or no to your supposition. But I, I don't know. I, you know, I will say, in, you know, in fairness to the administration, and this goes to the first bloom where they, they said, well, you know, we were really jamming it, which, you know what? That's something you don't actually like to say in public because if you're, if you're doing really good jamming, the other guy doesn't know you're doing that. They just think, oh, we bought, you know, crappy parts at, uh, at Radio Shack or something. So <laughs> to acknowledge that you detect the emissions and you're jamming it, you're telling them something. You just don't like to tell the enemy about your collection capabilities. And then somebody said, well, you know what? Part of the reason why they're doing this is we're seeing how they react to it. And the answer is, well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's true. They're going to gain some Ill intelligence about us because they know what we can detect and, and our reaction times and how we react. Um, but but clearly, I do think there are constraints on what they want to say publicly. So um, and that probably does limit some of that. But yeah, part of it maybe they they don't have a clue what's going on here. You know, I feel more vulnerable today because of what's happened over the past week. I feel more vulnerable today to either nuclear or even conventional attack from a hostile nation. Oh, here, here, How about you? Do you? Here's what, here's why you should feel a lot less secure. Um, and I wrote an article on this on a website called 1945. And the, the response on the balloon thing is almost exactly, in many ways, similar to the response on the border, which is they had an agenda. And even though their agenda was creating all kinds of risk for the American people, to them, the agenda came first. Um, I think it's the same thing with the balloons. If we do the timeline here, it's very clear that they knew the first balloon was coming um, and that for them, it was much more important for them to engage in the Chinese and send Blinken over there than it was to take an immediate response to this. So this is an administration that the first question they want to answer is what's good for my politics. And then if we're lucky, they're going to get around to what's good, you know, for our security. I mean, they've completely, you know, denuded the Department of Homeland Security 
we're more at risk now from a terrorist attack than we were in 9-11 because of the way they treat the Department of Homeland Security. They're playing politics with NORAD air defense rather than showing a demonstrably strong and aggressive response at the front end in a sense to scare the Chinese off. We, we've, we're still doing it. We're trying to downplay this. I thought, a big, big mistake. I thought NORAD was mainly for just tracking Santa Claus during the holidays anyway. So I'm, I'm glad well, that it has some some other uses, defense uses. So the interesting thing, and you know, we don't talk about it, of course, NORAD was started during the Cold War. It's a joint command between the United States and Canada. It's actually, very, uh, actually designed to run the early warning system to track incoming missiles because all these things, missiles, whoever shoots them at us, they're going to come over the North Pole. Um, and also... Uh, to coordinate airspace um, security. So before 9-11, NORAD looked outward. You know, since 9-11, NORAD's been inward and outward. Matter of fact, uh, if this had happened on 9-11, our ability to track those balloons in our airspace would have been very minimal, but that's completely changed. NORAD also does more now on looking at maritime space and approach. So it, it's actually, NORAD's very, very good and, and, and very, very valuable. I, the, my assessment when all this is said and done is the weaknesses in our response here are going to turn out to be not military capabilities, not response capabilities, but political decision makers. And, and that was and so this is uh, potentially one could argue this was the Chicoms playing a war game, trying to assess what kind uh, of response I, no, I think, we, we I would. Think this is, no, I think this is we have a massive missile fleet. It is no use to us unless the Americans fear that we can directly target their missiles and their cities, and we need targeting data. And this is a risk worth taking to get the targeting data we need to make all our missiles a real important thing that the Americans have to pay attention to. And so they did it, and and they said, we'll live with the consequences of it. I want to get your um, reaction to uh, one other topic before we let you go. Uh, Mr. Ten percent, the big guy, President Biden, sat down for an interview with Telemundo to talk about border policy. And he was uh, quite adamant that there are no plans to deport non-Mexican illegal immigrants to Mexico. Uh, They say that your administration has been negotiating to deport massively non-Mexican immigrants to Mexico. Now, DHS has denied these claims. But have you been having this conversation, sir? No. So that reporting is completely wrong. What you just said is completely wrong, yes. So what's the, what's the policy that your administration is going to have in the, the border policy, after Title 42 is lifted? Well, the policy we're having is if, in fact, first of all, we, we engage the parole policy mm-hmm. for those five, so Nicaragua, uh, El Salvador, Haiti, Venezuela, Cuba. And uh, the, the uh, immigration, the, uh, the number of people coming has declined uh, over 90 percent, because there's a, there's a regular path to do it now. You're oh not considering God. and you wouldn't consider deporting massively non-Mexican immigrants to Mexico? I'm saying we have not done that. But would not... you consider it in the future, once Title 42 is lifted? I don't think we have to do that. We have to consider it. What do you think, Jim? Uh, there's no need for well, remain in Mexico because uh, Kamala Harris solved the Northern Triangle problem. I, I want to put a gun in my hand. First of all... <laughs> What a lie. 90% reduction in illegal crossings. This administration basically said, sign up on an app, go to a border crossing, and we'll let you walk in. So the reason I 
people aren't illegally crossing the border is we're just letting them walk into the United States through the port of entry. That is not a 90% reduction of anything. I mean, that is the most egregious law ever been said to the American people. The other thing I said, that clip that you just heard, every human trafficking cartel in the world, they are taping that, and that is an advertisement. They're going to play that for everybody. This administration will never send you back. Give me $10,000 and you can walk in the United States. It's, this is nuts. And, what, and what, what's not on that tape is that if the next president of the United States doesn't have a D behind their name, they will only be elected with a mandate to secure the border and deport people in large numbers. Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Heritage Foundation author of Brutal War. Jim, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. And he joined us on the turnkey.provincial line. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy J. This morning is Charles T., Charles Thomas, former ABC7 political reporter. Uh, Charles, I want to get your reaction to uh, this uh, Twitter thread I posted over the weekend. I essentially argue that, at least with respect to the campaign that he has run to this point, Paul Vallis is offering a return to Rom. Not in those words, but effectively that's what he's offering. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. I think he has launched his campaign for the runoff. And he is doing it in such a way where he's playing to the leftist sensibilities of the Chicago electorate. He's trying to, I mean, initially he was, of course, you know, he was appealing to the police union and to the more right center and conservative small number of Chicagoans. And now he's looking ahead to the, um, to the runoff. And so, he's trying to become more centrist or left-center. Yeah, so, um, hmm. Right, which sounds very reminiscent to Rom. Yeah. And, and, and so he's trying to appeal to the non-white uh, segment of the 70% of Chicagoans who think the city's on the wrong track. Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I think he's going for that. Uh, that that I don't think it's the non-white part of it. I think it's very white. I mean, like I, where not I, not not for not for a runoff for the runoff for oh, a runoff. Oh. It's got to, He's got to appeal to the non-white percentage. Well, of, he's got to get his got to get his share depending on who he runs against. Well, in, that, in the runoff, but well, I think man, you know, the people I think who are most committed to this liberal thing are. The white liberals, the young white liberals, man. Well, so 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 this is sort of my point. So if if he has to get his share of black and Latino voters, then is this pivot to presenting himself as some sort of combo of Gloria Steinem and David Hogg with sharper pencils? Does that does that bring in uh, the percentage of the black and or Latino vote that he needs in a runoff against? Either a black candidate or Chewy. Depends on who he runs against. I mean, I, I think, for instance, if he were to run against Brandon Johnson, he'd have a tough time getting the black vote. I mean, he'd have a real tough time. 
even though Brandon Johnson would not necessarily be the best candidate for black people. I mean, well, because of this whole school piece, as well as uh, and the tax thing, yeah, and and what uh, Brandon Johnson has said, and the fact that Brandon Johnson very well, at least during the first term that Brandon Johnson would be mayor, he would be he would act at the behest of the uh, CTU. I mean, he would he, he you you'd have to try to separate him from CTU because I don't think there will be an elected school board until twenty seven, right? So he would be. <laughs> Well, but, uh, vulnerable. So, 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 do you agree with me that the only candidate Paul Vallis has a chance of defeating in a runoff is Lightfoot? He could defeat Lightfoot for sure. Um, Willie Wilson would be tough. Uh, Chewy would be tough, but he might be able to beat Chewy. I, but, but, it, and and because well, he might be able to beat Chewy because of what he's trying now. Which is moving to, toward the left, toward the yeah, but 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 he's but he's doing. I mean, but it's so ham-handed and transparent. And Chewy already occupies that spot and has for thirty years. So oh, so now I believe Paul Vallis is uh, aligned with me. Uh, you know, abortion on demand and banning guns and so on and so forth. So now I'm comfortable with him. I mean, how does he how does he out left? You know, an avowed socialist like Chewy. Or did he say, well, it's now, he's now acceptable to me because I know he would be a, a better fiscal manager. So now I'm going to combine my comfort level with his leftism on social issues with his fiscal management uh, chops and I'll vote for him over Chewy. That's that's a calculus you think a lot of Chicagoans are going to go through. I mean, here's my thing. Well, I, you know, you, you've got me there because I think <laughs> I think he has a different set of of campaign points with each candidate that he with, with individual candidates that he might oppose in a runoff. I think is, I think he believes he's going to be in the runoff that he's going to finish number one because of his conservative and center right base. Yeah. But it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Finishing exactly. first. I mean, but it means I, nothing. that's why I think he's trying to slowly move out of there and position himself to be able to run against one of these far left candidates. Why, why isn't he? If why isn't he trying to help uh, select who he'd like to run against? If you agree with me, and you seem to, that you're much more confident he has a chance to be Lightfoot than any other candidate. Why is he not laying a glove on Chewy? Why is he not trying to prop up? Because Chewy, Lori, Chewy's a paper tiger, man. I, I, well, well, but, know, but 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 in a runoff, he's a more formidable candidate. Yeah, but I don't think he believes Chewy's going to make it. Who does he believe is going to make? He thinks Lori's going to walk. Walk in. Some of these polls are saying Lori can still pull in 15, 20 percent. That's all it's going to take. It's not going to take a lot what's, to, what's, to get in the runoff. Well, it doesn't seem to me Chewy's – it seems to me Chewy's floor is 20. Chewy's floor is 20? Yeah. His floor? Floor. I don't know. He's run a very bad campaign. I mean, he you – know, I, you know I agree. Chewy, you know who Chewy is to me? Chewy is the black Bobby Rush. I mean, the Latino Bobby Rush. He's got no nothing on the ground. Without CTU, there's nothing. There's nothing there. There, I mean, he's just kind of like a congressman, and that's all he is. Yeah, I understand. He's got nothing else. I understand. So I don't. I don't know that Chewy is the. I don't know that Chewy's the guy. And plus, he's got an. He's got a base. A lot of his base can't vote. They just cannot. They, they I understand. 
So I just don't think he's it's much there there now. Believe me, I'm usually wrong about Chicago politics <laughs> because man, oh. I don't understand these people. Yeah, I don't well, understand it. exactly. I don't it's, get it's, it. it's hard to crawl in the mind of uh, a supermajority of the electorate. I understand. Um, something else too about. Um, I'll take a call real quick. Jim in South Elgin, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Jim. Morning, Jim. Um, I do a lot of uh, talking, uh, calling in on Urban Talk Radio, and I'm supporting Willie Wilson in part because he wants to reopen a criminally destroyed Migs Airport, which will be 20 years as of next month. But also, I say, you know, he's a he's a businessman, and I think if he would have been around uh, instead of Lloyd Lightfoot, Chicago would have been much better because I think he would have called in the troops. Uh, to quell all the violence because Trump said, just give me permission, I'll come in. And these people say, well, we can't have Trump. Well, guess what? You don't have Trump, and you had a lot of violence. You have the decline of the city of Chicago as a result. Thanks for the call, Jim. Well, I mean, you could hardly do a worse job than Lori Light, but how could you do worse? Although, I mean, the return to ROM sort of value proposition um, is yeah, the, the, the good old ROM days weren't, that weren't all that good. I mean, he, he was managing the client of the city too. It just increased in pace under Lori. Well, I think I think Rom had the uh, business. Yeah, guys, I think they were back in Rom. I mean, you you hear nothing about that. Those guys being connected to uh, Lori Lightfoot. No, do you? I except mean, the, except Laura Michael Ricketts. Saxes of the world. No, the, 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 no, no, no. Of course not. No, no, of course, but. Uh, but again, I just I I'm I'm a little curious. So, for example, our, our friend John Garrido, recently retired Chicago police sure. lieutenant, he John. he posted about um, both Lightfoot and Garcia from back in the day that Jim was talking about the summer of love when the city was on fire a couple of times, and he reminds us, and there does need to be some reminding that uh, Lori and Chewy, along with the senior leadership of the Chicago Police Department, that are all you know, Lori foot soldiers, mm-hmm. essentially, um, you know, they smeared Chicago police officers who were at Bobby Rush's office staged there to rest after having been on shift for a minute. Like they were hiding and lo- looting his coffee and, and, and Orville Hot Redenbacher. Board. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, and so on and so forth. And, and that, that, and they continue to hold to those lies. They told the smearing of Chicago police that they did on that, after that evening, even though a report found, as Gar- as a Garrido cited, that what they described at a press conference is not not at all what happened. Uh, he writes the report. Uh, supervisors were told to arrest officers as much as possible because he didn't know they didn't know when they would officers would be activated back on their feet again dealing with protesters. Many were left with buses for use to use for resting. The officers. There on the south side around Russia's office were left with nothing. It's still unclear how they gained access to the office. It was determined there was no force entry, so it was either left unlocked or someone unlocked it for them to use. Common practice when you have a platoon of officers is you rest a portion of your team while the rest stand watch. That was the case with this team. Officers were rotated in and out while the rest of the team stood watch outside. When you're resting your officers, they're allowed to sleep, especially under circumstances that existed that weekend because they were exhausted from having been on on their on watch or um, policing for like 16 hours straight and so on and so forth. So that's what actually happened as opposed to that it was a shameful event and this and that. Chewy was a part of that, part of that smearing of Chicago police officers, but he hasn't worn the jacket for any of it. Just like Brandon Johnson's trying to walk away from the fact that he was a defund the police guy, is a defund the police guy. Well, is it Chewy? 
uh, as well? Didn't, uh, he, didn't he join I'm, in some of that rhetoric? I'm sure. I, I mean, yeah. de facto, he's always sort of couching it in sort of vanilla terms because, you know, he's just such he's sort of a he's just sort of a vanilla guy. I mean, he's a he's an apparatchik, right? He's not a he's not a member of the Politburo. Um, and so but I, I just I just don't understand, like Paul Vallis positioning himself in a vacuum. He's positioning himself without having to acknowledge uh, any of the other candidates or the underlying realities. He, this is sort of what he does in the debate. He's just going to rise above and by steeping his answers in data and process, he'll bore people to tears, but he'll separate himself from the ankle biters. He just rise above. He just rises well, he can above do that now. He can do that now. Can he? Yeah, he can do it now because I think he can depend being the only white candidate in the race. Mm-hmm. He can do that now. But when it gets down to the runoff and he's dealing with a city that's two thirds black and Latino it, and, and Asian, he's going to have to deal with it in a different way. I know. And and he, I think he's thinking about that different way now. He's got four weeks. He's got four. This weeks. is a guy. He's he's always trying to sort of. Uh, you know, move down, move up and down or, or along, I should say, right and left along the political spectrum. And that's that's Ramon, Rom-esque. Yes. Well, that's what Definitely. I mean. Return to Rom. Yeah, Transactional. Yeah, I, I'll buy that. I mean, all, all he needs is the cardigan sweater. But Rom won a couple of times. Yeah. And, you know, with this kind of uh, approach to, to city politics. But he couldn't he couldn't run again because he couldn't win again. Right. Now, let me ask you something. What do you think? Given our experience or the experience of uh, November 8th, what do you think turnout is going to be for this first round um, in in a couple of weeks from now? 20%. 20%. Oh, my gosh. Don't if you think? That, if that happens, then I think you might be looking at a Brandon Johnson versus Paul Vallis race, which will be about as black and white, uh, no pun intended, because I'm talking issues here as opposed yeah. to race that that you will ever ever that you would have had in this this city and huh. I forever. just I mean I just I well, what what is my the, the, this campaign is so dismal as I mentioned you could if you remove the names of the candidates from the campaign commercials you couldn't tell the campaign commercials apart you couldn't tell which commercial was for for which candidate the scripts are the same and and that's why this city is in deep 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 doo doo man because. The, the, who's watching those debates and who's gleaning anything from them? Well, because there, there's got to be change over these next four years, particularly as it as it pertains to public safety. I know, yeah, and, but 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 I mean, seventy percent of the I know seventy percent say wrong track, but it's sort of like Illinois. Yeah, it's terrible, but I've given up, so I'm not participating. I I can see that. I I sense it. Uh, I sense it around my building when I talk to people that they aren't really engaged. Maybe I'm being a little cynical. Maybe people will pick up attention as uh, as there's a push here in the last couple of weeks. Maybe you know, maybe it'll be in the 30s or low 40s. I, but I just think I just think you're. I think this this is so these the performance of the city and the performance of the candidates that offer a different path for the city has been so lackluster. I just don't see. I see an enthusiasm deficit, and that usually means low turnout. Like perhaps even historically low turnout. You know, I mean, what's the What's the impetus? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go die on a uh, gonna go run and, and die in a hill for Paul Vallis. I mean, I, t- I tweeted this too. It's just like so. 
I mean, in, in this, let's say you know, Vallis somehow runs the gauntlet. He gets Lightfoot in a runoff and he wins. So why, why? I know he's supposed to be an agent for change, institutional change. But what, what, what institution has he challenged in this campaign? The, pre, the press corps? The identitarian hustlers? The C-suite cowards? The aging machine hacks? You know, the, group, the groups of people responsible for the city's demise? Where, where has he, like, drawn lines and said, thou shalt not cross again? I haven't seen it. You mean rhetorically in the campaign? Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't seen but, that. But, well, I, I go back to what I said a few seconds ago, that whoever is elected mayor is going to have to restore um, you know, you know, public safety. He's going to he's gonna have to do something about CTA. He's going to have to do something about the, the mag mile, whatever, and, the, and State Street uh, going, to, going down the tubes and what's happening in the neighborhoods, uh, the, the, you yeah. know, the, these criminals running amok. Yeah, they they're gonna ha- he, whoever is elected. I don't care if it's Willie Wilson, Paul Vallis, Lori Lightfoot. I just don't think there's a, she's had her shot. Or Brandon Johnson, whomever. They're gonna have to do that. I mean, you know. Oh, by the way, there were 700 murders a year under Rom too. The, the the difference here is the last four years is it's moved to right. areas of the city that people actually care about. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's going to show. We're going to see that. So so with, so so with, what? With so Paul, that's what we're seeing with Paul. Well, Dallas I know. Right so now. so what? We're going to have a return to uh, you know enough policing and and political backing of policing that uh, the Mag Mile and Lincoln Park and Lakeview and Streeterville and River North are safe again, and that's going to mean a, a renaissance for you, Chicago. You know, it's not. Hey man, look, it's not. Let me whisper. Let me do it. <laughs> let me do it, Joe Biden. You're going to have police being proactive, stop and frisk. Huh? That's what's going to happen. Huh? You know, I, I it's going to happen. I only believe like, you because you use soda voce. <laughs> that's the only reason I believe that could happen. Did a, did a Joe, did a Joe Biden, did a sleepy on you? But you know, that's what's going to. Ha- they're going to have to make it inhospitable for the bad guys to to venture into the, in the neighborhoods, stealing the cars, the carjacking, the the robberies. They're going to they're going to make it inhosp- in, inhospitable, and the only way they're going to do that is by some seriously. Seriously, you know, iron-fisted kind of policing. Better hope and, that, and, better, and somebody has. To, they have to be sure that when they do that, that they that they do it constitutionally. And that's why, again, that's why I think Willie would actually be the best candidate well, because he'd be very sensitive to that. Whoever that next, that person is, they better be hoping the Supreme Court holds the Safety Act unconstitutional. Mark on the South Side. Hey, how you doing, guys? Uh, I just wanted to go ahead and say I agree with Charles. Um, you know, I, one, um, you know, I've had, had these conversations a couple of months ago, and I personally believe that the runoff is going to be between uh, two or three people, between Paul, Lori, or Brandon. Um, I, I think Chewy comes in in a strong fourth, but I think Paul is, I think just going off of what Charles said, Paul is your strongest candidate right now. He's the only white male, only white man that's running right, right now at the moment. Um so he's going to collect a huge number of votes on that regard and going to get a huge amount of support. I've been up north, whether it's Wicker Park, West Town. I've been all the way out south, whether it's, you know, uh, in, in certain areas such as Beverly and close to that Mount Greenwood area. And I can tell you right now, he's getting a huge amount of support. And he's getting a huge amount of black support as well, believe it or not. You know, um, you know, I was at a dinner not too long ago, and he had a huge amount of black support. I think Paul is, is the top runner right now. 
right, the question is, who is he going? Who is he going to be going against? And yeah, Mark, Mark if Paul pulls it out all together. Thanks for the call, Mark. Appreciate it. Well, the only way he pulls it out has a potential to, I would say again, is if Lori Lightfoot is the nominee and he should be, or is his opponent in the runoff and he should be working to make, help make that happen. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and in for Amy J this morning, former ABC 7 political reporter Charles Thomas. Uh, Charles, uh, Jason Furman of Harvard, former Obama economic uh, guru chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under one President Obama, mm-hmm. tweeting, uh-oh, some of that inflation slowdown that people, including me, were excited about might have just been a seasonal adjustment quirk. Core CPI, Consumer Price Index, for the last three months of the year goes from 3.1% to 4.3% with the new seasonal factors that the Bureau of Labor Statistics just released. So... Maybe we're not out of the woods yet when it comes to prices uh, declining to uh, pre-pandemic levels and what that will mean for uh, the availability of credit and economic growth and employment and all of the other factors in our economy. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Tammany, editor at RealClearMarkets.com, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, author of The Money Confusion, How Illiteracy About Currencies and Inflation Sets the Stage for the Crypto Revolution. John, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, Jason Furman says he went to, he's a professor at Harvard. Uh-oh. You better not cross him, John. So what would what do you have to say to Jason Furman? Oh, I feel if you looked it up, you'd find that no one alive has rebutted Jason Furman more than I. So, uh, wow. uh, so if I cross him, it won't be problematic. I've done it numerous times. Uh, to blame, say that rising prices cause inflation is like saying that suntans cause the sun to shine. And at best, it reverses causation. <laughs> post hoc, uh, post hoc ergo prompter hoc fallacy is what you're saying. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. It's, it, you know, prices go up and down for all sorts of reasons. Um, that is a market economy. If a price is going up, uh, Super Bowl tickets last night cost between ten and forty thousand. When I first went to a game in nineteen eighty-seven for the Super Bowl, they cost a little over a hundred. Is that inflation? No, that's just a lot more demand for something that is limited in supply. That's not inflation. Um, if you had a cell phone back in 87, you were most likely someone who was extraordinarily rich. Now they're commonplace. Is that deflation? No, that's just productivity. Prices go up and down. And so that the CPI is moving around, I don't think means very much. Uh, to me, inflation remains a devaluation of the unit, as in our dollar. And we haven't seen that in recent years. And so I go back again to what I've said on your show before. 
to me, the higher prices are a statement of the obvious. You can't shut down the global economy and eviscerate remarkably sophisticated global cooperation and expect prices to remain the same. They were going to be higher by nature. Right, but then, then the question is, uh, uh, when, when can we expect uh, supply to um, meet come, come closer to meeting demand and see prices reduced? Because it's not... Uh, in controversy that uh, people, middle-income people, for example, are paying more from their take-home pay to the essentials of life, like groceries? Well, the first thing I would say is this is not a supply problem. Supply and demand, by definition, match each other. We know that. That's just basic. Well, You're a Bastiat fan, so am I. By definition, and if, and if a, there's a, a limited supply. Market. Yeah. Well, no, but okay, but in, if there's a limited supply of, of, I don't know, chicken breasts such that they're higher, as a rule, there's less demand for other things. And so it's important to point out that right now inventory within businesses has never been higher. If you're Dell Computer, if you're Nike, if your business is like that, you have lots of excess. And so prices must fall if prices are going up. What I keep arguing is that how we got to such low prices in February of 2020 was a consequence of immense and wildly sophisticated global cooperation. Why did Henry Ford successfully make the car accessible to most anyone? He did by dividing up labor in specialized fashion. Well, suddenly that specialized division of labor was eviscerated. You can't rebuild that overnight. And so for when politicians say, well, hey, it's inflation, to me, that's more offensive than Obama saying you didn't build that. You expect them to build the amazing thing that they built, rebuild it overnight? I mean, please. Of course prices are higher. It's not demand and supply. It's that we have to get back to where we were, which was a miracle. Now, you um, place – you, you uh, suggest routinely that the Fed's uh, uh, control over the economy is vastly overstated. Um, but the problem I see is that um, the you know the, the uh, trading markets disagree with you, and the performance of the trading markets is impactful in terms of the sort of liquidity in the economy uh, and people's willingness to invest, willingness to. How do the spend, trading markets spend. disagree with me? How do they, how do they disagree with me? Well, well, because they play because they place a lot of importance on Jay Powell's pronouncements, don't they? Well, you, you say that, but back in the 2000s, the Fed was aggressively cutting rates and stocks were plummeting. Uh, back in 2007, 2008, the Fed was aggressively cutting rates and stocks plummeted. So I don't, I, I don't see what you're saying. If central banks could do as, as it's assumed they can do, just stimulate markets, why is the Japan stock market exponentially higher than ours? Because they've been at zero for decades. Yet, in fact, their stock market is still roughly half of where it was in 1989. Um, if the Fed could shrink, if, if the Fed could cut rates and just cause the stock market to rally, well, by that measure, GM or actually GE and AOL and Yahoo and, and Enron and, and, and Tyco would still be some of the most valuable companies. Because the Fed was aggressively cutting rates back then. Where are they today? Well, and so, no, I well think- but I mean, those are I understand one off companies. But but I mean, I guess my large point. You, so you don't you don't think that um, the uh, all the attention paid to those Fed board meetings 
and the what the rate hike is going to what what was going to be in February and now what's going to be in March and is that going to be the last hike and so on and so forth all the stuff that dominates the uh, those investotainment shows on CNBC and so forth that does that that does doesn't impact the decisions that um, corporations make the decisions that individual investors make and uh, those decisions don't have ripple effects in terms of our our growth. Someone's the assumption is, oh, we'll see if the Fed cuts rates. Oh, yes, yeah, stocks just go up. Think well, about what that, what the, well, no, no, not no, exactly, that's, but that's not exactly okay, what I'm saying. That's kind of that's kind of what you're implying. So what you're saying is that half of the market knows what you know, but the other half is just blithely selling shares as though they don't know what you know. The think for every market, there's a seller and a buyer, and so this notion that the Fed can just stimulate stock market rallies by fiddling with rates presumes a level of information asymmetry that staggers the mind. Well, so, so, the- so, but, so but all, the, all of the Fed asset purchases over the last decade, you know, the quote-unquote quote, quantitative easing, um, I mean, that doesn't create market distortions? That doesn't... Why, those- well, I'm sure it does in treasuries and everything, but why would that... What, what would that have to do with economic growth? Japan's uh-huh. had exponentially more... And, and quantitative easings over the years. Where's the stock market rally been? Where's the distortion been there? Well, well, I'm, so, I, well, I'm, it can be a distortion that goes either way. I'm just saying it's a distortion. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that cut rates, market goes up. I'm saying that the Fed, uh, the, the the Fed uh, paternalism when it comes to markets matters based on what you see in terms of reaction to Fed policy from the markets. I mean, you were a wealth manager at Goldman, right, and Credit Suisse. You, you've been in the industry. So, so I mean, you, you like, nothing, the Fed, what the Fed did or didn't do, these market interventions by uh, central bankers, you didn't pay any attention to those things? Uh, no, I, I thought it was a waste of time. You see, when I was at Goldman, the Fed was aggressively cutting rates and stocks were falling just in, in, a, in a sickening way, such that most of the people there were laid off. And so this notion that, that the Fed can bail out markets and bail out Goldman Sachs, well, boy, I sure, I sure didn't witness it. The, the NASDAQ was in free fall, and so was the Dow. And I'm just saying if the Fed could prop up markets, as is broadly assumed, we would be too poor to be having this conversation right now. Just think about what that would imply. It would imply that, that they could keep uh, the present in place. Well, see, in the year 2000, the most valuable company in the world was GE. The two most dominant uh, Internet companies were Yahoo and AOL. The best managed company in the world was Tyco. The smartest company in the world was Enron. How are those doing today? And so it's 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 no, but but nobody's arguing it's the only variable. It's what I'm arguing is it's a variable. They are, but but well, okay, I'm not. I'm not. And and I've been fighting. And and the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Oh yeah, you know the Fed's easy money policies. Oh well, that causes stocks to no acknowledgement that central banks around the world have been doing the same thing with no similar rally, and no acknowledgement of a simple truth that because you said well, it's you can't just use one offs, but see one offs are what drive the market. What drove this market until recently? Five companies. Right. Uh, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, uh, you can name the, uh, the uh, Apple. Are you going to tell me those companies were actually, they, they were kind of humdrum, but they had the Fed behind them. But see, those companies back in 2000, well, Apple was near bankruptcy. Google wasn't even public. 
Amazon was Amazon.org. So we have to either acknowledge that the U.S. is full of great companies, which is what I say, or we have to go the Obama route. No, actually, the companies kind of suck, but uh, the, the Fed props them up. You didn't build I that. that notion outright. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so then when you look at the market today, not that you're providing advice and counsel for in, investment purposes, but, I mean, what's your, what's your handle on the vitality of, uh, uh, of Fortune 1000 and what's your – optimism or lack thereof in terms of where the American economy goes this year? Um, I'm always optimistic because the U.S. is full of the most enterprising people on earth. It's always going to go up. My strong sense is that it's going is that this next rally, whenever that happens, is going to be companies that we've never heard of. Remember, not too long ago, the view was that Google had an impregnable monopoly. Uh, Chat GPT kind of blew that one out of the water. Right. And, and so, and so, what you and this is the source of the U.S. stock market's vitality. It's not the Fed. Oh my God, the notion that J- Jerome Powell and Ben Bernanke and those clowns could actually cause the smartest, deepest markets in the world to go up, to cause basically some investors to be stupid and sell while others buy. It's just laughable. But what we do consistently see, and this is the source of, of, of stock market vitality, is that, we're, is that the greats are constantly being replaced by even better. And it, amazing to think that Facebook, which seemed impossible to beat, doesn't seem to be doing as well right now. Again, Google was caught flat-footed in the way that Microsoft, which was once thought to be a monopoly that couldn't be beaten, was caught flat-footed by the smartphone, by the Internet itself. And so we're going to see it over and over again. And there's your rally, not the Fed. Oh, my gosh. Why do, we, why do conservatives keep insulting the United States, the, the, these entrepreneurs by saying the Fed makes all this happen, or even, even some of it? John Tamney, editor of RealClearMarkets.com, director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, author of The Money Confusion, How Illiteracy About Currencies and Inflation Sets the Stage for the Crypto Revolution. John, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And he joined us on the Turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer. On AM560, The Answer. Dan and in frame BJ this morning is Charles Thomas, former ABC7 political reporter, you'll recall. And having a great time. Great to have you. And you're going to be back tomorrow? Absolutely. All right. Can't wait. Well, uh, the um, inhumanity at the hands of COVIDians has not dissipated much, at least where they can ply it. This story comes to us from our friend Emma Woodhouse at her Substack Wood Space House. A friend of hers contacted her about her mom, who's 73 years old. She tripped at her home, fell, dislocated her shoulder. Um, she called 911. Ambulance took her to Good Shepherd Hospital in Barrington, where she spent three days before being transferred to a Lutheran rehab facility in Arlington Heights. Over the weekend, she developed a fever, cough, fatigue, so they tested her for flu, RSV, and COVID. Flu and RSV negative, positive for COVID. And you know what that means, to the isolation chamber for you. Isolated in the COVID unit where she has to stay for 10 days, no visitors, no opportunity to retest and be transferred back to a regular floor. Would that have been the same if she tested positive for flu and RSV or RSV, I wonder? I don't really wonder. The administrative office has been calling this woman's daughter, Emma Woodhouse's friend, as her medical power of attorney to come in, 
to sign paperwork for Medicare, but the daughter saying, no, my mom is of sound mind. I'm not coming in as an exercise power attorney because there's no reason for me to do that. She can sign it herself. Well, she can't sign it herself because administration isn't allowed on the COVID floor. Very strict numbers as far as how many employees can be in the COVID unit at one time, this woman was told. She said to the administrative person, then I guess you're going to have to wait until she gets out. She also recounted the woman whose mom is in the COVID isolation chamber at this rehab facility in Arlington Heights, that her mom is not getting the same level of care in the COVID unit. It's not as well staffed, so they can't be responsive to her need to go to the bathroom, for example. So they put a diaper on her, which is humiliating for her in her state. The call buttons in the unit don't even make noise. They turn a light on over the door. When a nurse or aide happens to be walking by and sees her light, they come in. My mom was a nurse for her whole professional career. She's not stupid. She knows how this works. The facility also said on Friday they can't get her more pain medication. Remember, she dislocated her shoulder until Monday. Uh, For the COVID, they're giving her Tylenol. How can they do this to someone within, who within the past calendar week was able-bodied and active enough to live independently? Why are they still doing this to anyone? It's demoralizing, it's dehumanizing, and a complete fiasco. Yeah, and it persists. It persists, the COVID orthodoxy, covering our bases to all that we did over the last three years. We better keep doing it in small amounts to say, hey, we're still doing this. We think it works. They can kick it in again if they have to. Pay no attention to all these uh, meta-analyses that are coming out that we've talked about on the uh, ineffectiveness of masks, on the destruction of the lockdowns, particularly on kids, particularly as it relates to their social, emotional, intellectual development. Keep up appearances, even if you have to demoralize and dehumanize a senior citizen. For more on this, pleased to be joined by Jeffrey Tucker. Founder and President of the Brownstone Institute and the author of Liberty or Lockdown, Jeff Tucker. Thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. That's a pleasure to be here. It's a tragic story, tragic story. But it all is kind of baked into the entire flattened curve kind of ethos that began on March 20th. We're now three years flat in the curve. <laughs> yeah. That's just two weeks. Um, you know, it was all it was all rooted in a fundamental mistake that we could treat COVID like AIDS or like cooties. You know, the playground game you play as a kid, you try to stay away from the germ, and that was that was the goal from the very beginning. That's the basis of track and trace, is the basis of lockdowns and travel restrictions, and why you couldn't sing in church and you couldn't go to the gym and everything. Everything was designed to stay away from the germ so that we could control it and minimize it. Uh, now, that you know, was always an error. For generations, we've known that this type of bug is the sort of thing you uh, would necessarily get exposed to, and your immune system would take care of the rest. And we were generations were taught that in ninth grade biology. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but it's a mark of a high civilization that you understand that not, you know, that... That the key to life is not just entirely avoiding the microbial kingdom. You know what I mean? Right. And so we knew this and understood this, and, and it was a burden of public health for the better part of a century to teach this to every generation. And then one day they just shut that knowledge off and said, everybody run to the bug, it's coming to get you, just stay away. Now, uh, 
and 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 you recall this. I mean, you're in you're in public life. You're you're coming down the stuff every day. I mean, how often during the spring and summer and the winter and the spring the spring and summer and the fall and winter for the last three years have you actually said to uh, out loud that the main purpose, the, the your main your best strategy is to get healthy, get exposed, get upgraded. You know, get your uh, immune system uh, making this particular pathogen endemic in your body, like we do with, with all colds and flus and everything else. And that is the path to uh, to to working through this pandemic. I mean, you didn't say that very often. I didn't say that very often. And the reason was that it was basically sort of a taboo. They successfully tabooized. I guess I don't know what the right word is. Uh, good public health measures. I mean, so that we couldn't even talk about it very plainly because otherwise, you know, there would have been a New York Times saying, Chicago, the morning answer says everybody should get infected. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, but, so we couldn't say uh, basic truths, and it got so bad. I was trying to remember this morning exactly when it was that the World Health Organization actually changed its definition of herd immunity. Well, it turns out that happened in the second week of November 2020, uh, where the World Health Organization said herd immunity comes about uh, by getting injected with a vaccine, not by being exposed uh, to the live pathogen. Okay, they actually said this. Now, three months later, two or three months later, they changed it back again. But so here you have the World Health Organization itself wiping out the knowledge of two and a half thousand years, uh, just you know, by by some intern, you know, with a, with a, with a, a few keystrokes. Um, and you know, it's a very interesting issue as to why this happened. And I've been thinking about that a lot in the last couple of days. Well, um, I mean, just as we continue, as I mentioned at the outset, to uh, have more meta-analyses done, more studies done, trying to assess the impact of these COVID uh, responses. Um, also, we're getting more information about what these public institutions, governments, did during COVID. For example, according to uh, uh, one uh, New York City organization, a uh, legal group there, New York City teachers who declined to get the COVID vaccine had their personnel files flagged and their, singer, their fingerprints sent to the FBI and the New York Criminal Justice yeah. Services. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, this, the, the whole system was organized around the marketing and testing of a new technology. I mean, that's my bottom line. I think that that was the goal from from February of 2020 and remains the goal today. Uh, and you cannot market and test a new technology on a population that's already acquired natural immunity. Why? Because they don't need it. And from the pandemic planning point of view, what they needed was a customer base. Therefore, the goal became to keep as many people away from the pathogen as possible to keep them from uh, upgrading their immune system and therefore their health so that we would become dependent on shots for our 
our existence. Now, the plan was pretty darn insidious, if you ask me. But here's where it went wrong, and you know the end of the end of the story, right? I mean, what went wrong was the vaccine did not work. So well, that it, was it, not I, something they had anticipated. I don't think. That, that it didn't work to stop the spread, which is what that was advertised to do. Um, and now we find out, uh, by the way, I mean, it, well. F- f- so it didn't work so upside, and we find out from Tony Fauci in this paper that was released um, the other week that, um, yeah, he had good reason to believe that um, a uh, non-mucosal vaccine would not stop the spread. So he was perpetrating, a, a, knowingly perpetrating a fraud on the entire world for that period of time where he was getting people to repeat after me, uh, get a vax, and you can't get infected, and you can't infect others. It's a little weird. I the thing is that uh, you probably knew this at the outset. I certainly did uh, from the very earliest age when people are, you know, I don't know when they started talking about a vaccine publicly. I mean, we know they were planning this for a long time before, but when they started talking about a vaccine, I think it might have been, I don't know, let's just say it was April uh, 2020 when I first heard where this, I just laughed. Ha 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 ha. Oh, sure. You can't vaccinate against coronavirus. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. It's going to mutate too much by the time we get a vaccine. The, uh, the variant will change. Then it won't be uh, ethical. You have to change the vaccine. And then you risk uh, hardwiring the immune system to one particular variant and making it vulnerable to not only new variants of the same pathogen, but other forms of pathogens that otherwise would infect you. And so I knew this. I knew every bit of this going on. And I wrote this. I said, you know, I can end this pandemic with a potion. So there's nothing in Fauci's article that uh, is news. Uh, but what's strange is that we had to pretend like none of this was true for the better part of two years. Well, we the, well like- yeah, but the, but the news is that Fauci was saying, I mean, the news is his name on an article that confirms that he knew what he was saying was untrue. I mean, it's nice yeah. to have the evidence. Right. So why would you why would you say untrue things for the better part of two years? Like, why would you do that? Right. And uh, look, the answer is pretty obvious. It became a an industrial machine with a product that they wanted to sell. And when people didn't want to buy it, they made you get it. And when they didn't, they made you, made you get it, and you still refused, and they put you on a on a wanted list. Yeah, like, this actually happened in the United States of America. I mean, I, I am just like, there's no minute of the day that I'm not just constantly outraged by this. And, and it and it requires groups like this Teachers for Choice organization. Uh, it's being uh, represented by Alliance for Defending Freedom at um, uh, New York City to bring this to light. I mean, I, I, you know, it's it's funny because you simultaneously see two things, like a lack of really an impetus to hold people accountable for the decisions they made and for the lies they told, purposely so. And at the same time, you see quietly people just walking away, right? The lack of adoption of your second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth booster. They're done with it, but they, they want to be done with it. And I guess that's just the nature of the human condition. We just, we just it was an ugly period. We just want to move on. We don't want to have to deal with that anymore. And unless, you know, our mom is being uh, quarantined at a Northwest Suburban Hospital, then we're just yeah. going to move on to, to, to our lives. That's the idea. I think, and that's what they, you know, I mean, Fauci's amnesia, you know, he went in before sworn testimony uh, for this uh, uh, t- 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 trial brought on uh, big tech censorship. 
And over seven hours, he said, I can't recall, you know, something like nine times, okay? No, more than 200 times. So, you know, amnesia is the new pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's very bad because we really, like, if we don't want this to happen to us again, we really need to learn and remember and deal with the reality. It's uncomfortable. It's a terrible period in our lives. We're all damaged from it. But... But the people who do remember and learn the lesson are the heroes of the day, as far as I'm concerned, because they're studying new organizations, new uh, uh, technologies, new ways of schooling, even new churches, uh, new professional societies, new think tanks, everything, to to deal with the terrible reality that we confronted and, and not pretend like it didn't happen to us. We have to come to terms with this. I mean, this is what... Obviously, I do this every single day, and so do you. Uh, it's extremely important we understand something went very wrong in this great, great, great country that was uh, founded to defend human rights and freedoms, where one day we woke up and they were all gone, you know? So, and, and it could happen again unless we get some openness and admissions and some accountability. Uh, speaking of accountability, Last week, I don't know if you caught the news of this, but Brownstone Institute sponsored um, a group called the uh, Norfolk Group that put together a kind of a, a blueprint, a template for accountability for investigations and all this kind of stuff. And went through 10 areas of failures and cited all the science at every step. Uh, at where you know the, the, it's designed to the, these are the questions we need to ask people at all levels of society, from big tech to big media to uh, public health to government officials, everybody involved in decision making to, to find out exactly what they were thinking on all these subjects. And it's not just for the federal level. This this blueprint is designed for all the states and the cities and the counties and really, you know, every country in the world where these same plans were enacted and so that we can, you know, have a coming to terms of what happened. Well, look for that. Look for, yeah, that Norfolk Group uh, blueprint. Very good. Jeffrey Tucker, Tucker, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, author of the book Liberty or Lockdown. Jeffrey Tucker, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Okay. My pleasure. Thank you. And you join us on the Turnkey.pro Answer Line. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.